I think I hate you. Hey, uh, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> what Joe. do you call... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> hey, Jordan. Hey, Joe. What do you call a cat that's just given... Not a cat. Oh, my God. <laughs> what do you call a cow you that's just... want to start... I know. Jordan... <clears throat> what do you call are you dying <laughs> you sound like you're dying <laughs> joe's just getting over covid i'm just getting over covid and we already did this podcast open <laughs> and we got 10 minutes into We've it been talking for 20 minutes and i just realized <laughs> that uh i did not hit record so that's so on me that's you need bad. to look me in the eyes and laugh at this joke as you hear it for the fourth time hey joe hey jordan hey what would you call a mommy cow who's just given birth. I don't know, Joe. What would you call a mommy cow who has just given birth? Decaffeinated. Ha. Ha. Oh, my gosh. You got to uh-huh. let it breathe. <laughs> let the joke breathe. This is called comedic timing. Welcome to the Sacred Cows podcast. <laughs> Hey, Jordan, what are we talking about today? Sorry. <clears throat> what are we talking about today, well, Today Jeff? we're talking about can- canonicity. Mm-hmm. And what do we mean when we talk about, when we say things like canonicity in regards to scripture in the Bible, Jordan? So, oh, I can't believe I'm, I'm so angry at myself for not remembering to record. I can't believe I have to go over everything. Yeah, I thought our intro, I was getting honestly, legitimately, the best intro we've ever had of this podcast <laughs> And we were not <laughs> recording the whole time. So you have to sit and wonder what it was. Uh, Lost was forever. Like? So we're talking about Lost canonicity. Lost implies that we had something to begin with. We're Jordan. talking about canonicity today, uh, Joseph. And uh, canonicity, I'm going to use the same example I used in the opening that we didn't record is mm-hmm. that uh canonicity for those who don't know is essentially the true or correct collection of writings or beliefs on a specific topic or for a specific franchise or anything like that so you might have heard uh people talk about like star wars canon and star wars canonicity and that just means that there's like a bunch of things written about star wars whole extended universe but there's like the true reality of star wars the like true timeline uh and that is the canon so that's the canon timeline and then you have stuff outside of that uh that might be good stories or might be like other stuff might be awful stories but none of it is none of it is part of the true timeline so that's what we mean when when we talk about canonicity so in regard to scripture uh canon refers to the that element of collective works that are the right teaching that are the works that are, are recognized by the early church and so forth as inspired works of god that um, contain the correct teaching or the right teaching or um, the teaching that god has handed down through the apostles basically so it's those those things that are collected and recognized as specifically from god this is the canon of scripture uh which has been pretty fairly agreed upon throughout church history um with exception, and that's super rare. Um, if you know anything about church history, you know that they very rarely agreed on anything, um, with a few notable exceptions. Um, just like the church today, we like to argue about things. Um, I know nobody's familiar with that, I'm sure. Um, but we do like to argue and debate about things. But it's interesting that there's a, a collection of works, you know, with a few exceptions that have stood the test of time for the church um, as recognized as uh, living up to the standard of canon. So. Yeah. Hey, that was pretty good. I hey, feel thanks, like we man. got through our whole our whole introduction. You're now up to a, speed. <laughs> that was a little bit faster than we did it. We joked around a little bit more. Yeah. But, um, well, we, there was more filler, so you get all killer. Yeah. All killer, <laughs> no filler. This time. Yeah. Um. Canon is kind of a hot topic. It it wasn't before, like the 1970s, 1980s. When was um. When was that collection of writings? Uh, found you know what the I'm Dead talking sea about? Scrolls? No, the the uh, the Nag Hammadi codices that uh, they were found in like 1980 or something, 1970, something like that, I believe. Uh, and it was a it's a codex of a bunch of uh, Gnostic writings, which oh. we'll get into like what Gnostic writings are. But, yeah. Um, 
it was never a hot topic. And then essentially we found all these different writings that are dated to a similar period as the church writings. And we're going to get into, there's a lot of nuance there. So we're going to get into that, but they're uh, dated pretty similarly. They talk about a lot of the same things. They are, some of them are self-described gospel accounts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they were found a couple years ago and everybody freaked out. And essentially you had a bunch of people going like, oh, there were, there were so many other books of the Bible and then they got removed and then Constantine made the true canon. Oh yeah. Like that's my favorite, that's my favorite Christian argument for anything is like, it's Constantine. Constantine. He came in and he ruined the church. Is Constantine the true <laughs> devil of of Christian history? <laughs> I think like, he's the sacred he's... cow of Christian history. <laughs> Everything is blamed on Constantine. Uh, the but, scapegoat of yeah, Christian history. Yeah, there you go. Um, but essentially you have a bunch of writings and everybody's like, oh, well, I guess Christians must have changed stuff and Christians are hiding so much stuff and look at all of these things that used to be uh, well known but then christians like because christians controlled That's an everything interesting they, idea they changed everything oh because of christendom yeah yeah that's changed everything from yeah Cause, from what because well a lot of <laughs> a lot of non-christians hold the belief that like christians are are so super concerned with uh portraying christianity in a good light which we are that's true but uh, in a lot of people's minds, that means like burying information and like hiding bad things that the church has done in the past, which is not true at all. It's fairly, I mean, because the because the church has been so documented throughout history, yeah. Because a lot of historians were Christians, it's it's pretty easy to to not be mystified and see like. I guess, quote unquote, how the sausage is made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, there's a lot of skeletons in, you know, the church's closet, so to speak. And they're, the closet's almost transparent. Like, it's not hard to, to see the dirty laundry of the church in circumstances like that. So, I mean, which I mean is not a bad thing. Like, if there's, if there's things that, you know, people have done wrong. Yeah. Like, it should be recognized that th- these were either mistakes or like, it was sin or whatever you want to call it. Like, I don't have a problem with that. And we can talk about that at some point because there are, there are truly awful, horrible things that have been done by Christians uh, and in the name of Christianity. So we can talk about that at some point. The, the point I'm making is it's not like hidden knowledge. Like there's no great conspiracy to cover everything up. And like, yeah, that, that's just an insane belief to me. There, um, there have been things in recent times, like the uh, the allegations. I don't want to say the word in case uh, we get uh, in case we get an adult only strike on YouTube or something like that. But um, <laughs> there, the the all the child loving that has gone on <laughs> in the Catholic Church uh, that kind of was covered up in the '90s and '80s. Uh, and aughts and 2010s even i think so that's horrible we're going to talk about that eventually my point my point being is that there's no like great huge conspiracy historical church conspiracy to cover up all of its dirty laundry yeah i mean i'm sure there were like small pockets of localized oh we should not talk about that stuff but like from a like historical standpoint Mm -hmm. i think it's just interesting because every whether you're Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, everybody likes to claim the Church Fathers mm-hmm. um, as being on their side to back up whatever argument they're trying to make. So I feel like pretty universally around Christianity, uh, at some point you can find a middle ground and be kind of objective with, you know, teachings and things like that and circumstances. And... Yeah, especially... I, the, I'm sorry, we're going to get to canon. We are. Especially, <laughs> I love that people think this because I kind of equate it to um, individuals who think the moon landing didn't happen. And for me, I know like there's a lot of evidence the moon landing happened, obviously. Uh, for me, the biggest thing... You don't think there's a lot of evidence that the moon landing didn't happen? <laughs> for me, the biggest thing uh, is that 
Christianity had so many enemies throughout its history, like so overwhelming number of people who hated Christians and yeah. hated Christianity and had everything, had all the interests in the world and seeing it fail. Um, and they don't bring up any of these like grand conspiracies against it or anything. And mm-hmm. I bring up the moon landing because like to me, the the biggest evidence that the moon, land, the moon landing happened is that everybody else in the world said it happened like russia like if the moon landing was fake you'd think our greatest enemy at the time russia would have would have tried to fight us on it foul. a little bit yeah <laughs> and they did not so uh yeah it it it's just kind of a i get why people argue it it's just like a really funny really baseless argument i think that uh it, it it's Jordan, just the flag was waving of me to think there's no wind on the moon <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right canonicity let's, canonicity let's, let's go ahead and backtrack back to that because yeah. that was our main topic for today supposed to be um which was interesting you said something a little bit ago and maybe this was in our introduction when we were talking about like those books that are recognized as canon um, and that's we, we what we would call the four principles for canonicity which it's four I had always heard three Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought we were on the same page with that. And then we sat down and Jordan was like, you wrote down three principles for canonicity. And it turns out just like that, I'm a heretic. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that was a joke. Um, Joseph is not a heretic. Can we get a joke? A Never joke mind. board? Yeah, like a... I don't make enough money for that. <laughs> I just think like we're a... ma- we're, I, I want uh, to let our audience know we are making zero dollars from this <laughs> Currently, podcast. Currently, zero dollars have been made off of this podcast. Probably zero dollars forever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah. the principles for canonicity, I had always learned was, obviously, like it had to be written by an apostle or somebody that an apostle endorsed, right? Mm. Or knew personally. Somebody who knew Jesus or was alive when Jesus had been alive, wrote one of the books. Um, That's the number one and kind of the biggest one. Um, Widespread use in the early church, right? So can we historically look back and see like that this was being talked about, that the church fathers were engaging it with it? Like, was it being passed around from church to church? Um, And then the third one was for me, what was, um, just the idea that it had life-changing power like this was had to have come from god because people read this and their lives get changed like there's something different about this book that inspires a different type of spiritual change in people's lives that we can see fruit bearing from how they interact with this how they read this how they grow from and how they live their lives and how they apply it so and then your fourth one was so uh it sounds like my last like your third one is just like my last two kind of combined into oh, a single okay. one so cool. i i'm uh pulling from dr elmer towns here but this is i've heard this from a bunch of different sources and this was just always the way i learned it i'd never heard of three only but um the third and fourth is uh a that they were revelatory in nature which just seems to be kind of similar to you that they seem to inspire change in people they mm-hmm. seem to like reveal things to people um and four that they bore the marks of inspiration that yeah. they just like generally it seemed to be from god because scripture is god breathed right yeah. so it seemed, they seem to bear the marks of being god breathed and inspire change in people's life which is like the big marker for canonization and i feel like my professor um always drilled this into our head christians didn't decide what was and wasn't inspired like what is inspired comes from God. Like God decides if a work is inspired because it's breathed out by him, right? Mm-hmm. So Christians aren't choosing which books are and aren't inspired. They're recognizing based off of the qualities of the book and looking at it and saying, yeah, that's inspired. That that meets the standard of teaching. Um, that should be in a collection of works that we have that we recognize. So, Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I had to answer that. <clears throat> I mentioned before the podcast started on like for a whole semester on every single quiz in my Bible intro class, I had to answer that question was whether or not the Christians came up. (laughs) So uh, you all have to suffer because I suffered, but it's interesting. What I really wanted to hone in on, on all of that was because you were talking about these other writings that were discovered. Right. Um, And so can we look at those writings and say, do those fit the three or four criteria for inspiration 
should they have been recognized and if so why weren't they right yeah and um i mean i guess we can uh start wherever here but uh did you want to talk about the differences between old testament and new testament canonicity because up until this point we've i've um even though we didn't state this uh explicitly we're pretty much referring to new testament canonicity right Old Testament canonicity is a little bit different. Yeah, so, you want to so talk about that I can kind of bit. summarize that if you want to just move past it pretty quickly. Um, but I don't know if you have any strong thoughts about it. Basically, the there were a few books, according to the Jews, that almost didn't make it into the canon. Um, books like, you know, Proverbs, um, because it's, it's more or less general wisdom. Um, and it let, matches up pretty clearly with some other ancient writings. So it's kind of, it seems like what... What's happening there is the wisdom is being pulled in and um, basically baptized, I guess, for lack of a better term, is in these other ancient wisdom books, it's about how like you can get ahead in life, right? If you're looking at like Egyptian or Assyrian wisdom literature. Um, but when it comes to Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. Or, um, so it almost didn't make it in because it was too general, <laughs> Um, and other books like Esther, where it's Yahweh isn't mentioned by name and things like a few others, um, Ezekiel. And I think they didn't like Ecclesiastes because it was kind of depressing. Um, I don't think Ecclesiastes is depressing. But basically by around, I think, 140-ish to 40 BC, um, they had the Jews had their canon pretty well cemented in like these are the books. So before Jesus is born, like incarnate, like the Jews already have their registered, like these are the books that we believe are canon that sort of fit the same criteria of like these have been passed down. These are recognized as to be able to help people grow spiritually. They're referenced by other books, which is a super big one for Old Testament canonization is, is this book referenced by another book um, that we know is inspired. So uh, yeah, so around 140, 40 period, I think my professor gave me 50 BC uh, was or BCE, however you want to say it, uh, mm -hmm. is around the time they finished their canon. I think it was the, you know, about the Hasmoneans. Uh, yes. Yeah. Vaguely. The descendants of the Maccabees. Mm -hmm. So you have the Maccabee revolt that takes place in between testaments, which are part of the apocryphal books, which we'll also talk about. Um, but basically their descendants kind of, you know, I don't want to say rule and reign, but safeguard Israel until, you know, Greece and Rome come in or, or excuse me, before Rome comes in. Um, and they kind of solidify the, the teaching works and books. And it's sort of under their guidance that in my understanding, I could be wildly wrong, but that's how I remember it yeah. being taught. Um, so basically by the time the new Testament is being written and penned, the Old Testament canon is pretty well solidified and fixed mm -hmm. together. And um, the Jews just had such a good like tradition of like safeguarding their texts. So they would destroy texts if they found like errors and there were too many errors and it couldn't be fixed like easily. They would just get rid of the whole the whole text. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The um, when Jewish scribes would make copies of scripture um they would and you can correct me on all the differences in hebrew here but this is just how i understand it is that they would uh read a line and they would note down how many words were in that line how many syllables were in that mm -hmm. line like exactly perfectly everything that was in that line and then they would copy it over to their copy yep. perfectly and if they messed up they would get rid of the page and start all over well so it's a scroll right we're looking correct. at a scroll here so yeah. you had to fix the mistake but if it was a finished scroll and they went back and they found like a mistake that couldn't be fixed because it's pretty artful work mm -hmm. they would get rid of it then but it's kind of it's a it's a popular teaching point that if they made any mistakes they just had to get rid of everything mm -hmm. and that's not true because scrolls are expensive in the ancient world Mm -hmm. um, so you just had to make sure um, you fixed it, but you can look it up online now because they still do this you, and you can see they have like a, a tab of like the writing on it and they would like just writing it down. Yeah. And the problem 
with a lot of that stuff is is like if you don't have that and you don't have like the line right in front of your face like you try it right now you go find yourself a notebook and write down scripture like as a spiritual discipline for fun just like copy the verses down you'll be amazed at how often your eyes drift to the same word on a different page or a different line and you realize that you've written down the wrong line uh i do that all the time so Mm -hmm. it's just super common so they wanted to get rid of that is possible. So they had a whole process for how they found it. Yeah. And so they're super. But you're right about the numbers. Concerned yeah. with the accuracy of the the copies there. Yeah. Making. So much so that they we don't have like tons and tons of like th- things to compare like manuscripts and stuff to because they got rid of all the ones that, that didn't meet their standard, which is why the Dead Sea Scrolls are such a huge find is because there's a huge gap where we don't have a lot and then oh the dead sea scrolls sort of match up further back and they're eerily similar close with very little differences to the point where we can say wow they had this pretty right for like a couple hundred years at least where the tradition upheld that this was the right way to yeah that this was the right information inside these texts the new testament is a completely different ball game correct yeah and i'll just add that um the Jews had a very healthy distinction between extra biblical writings and biblical writings very, very early on. Um, so you have uh, in Jewish theology and in, in historic Judaism, you have a lot of writings by a, a lot of rabbis mm-hmm. um, because rabbis would just write down their teachings or their interpretations of certain biblical books or their sayings or whatever, what have you. Um, they would write them down and create books, and these rabbinic teachings are still held in very high regard today. Uh, but there was never any confusion about them being the same as uh, the right. Torah. Yeah. There, there was never any like, oh, well, this, this, uh, even though this book very closely resembles the scripture we have, it might be it might have been like a lost book or there was never any of that there was always a very very healthy and very clear distinction between extra biblical writings and biblical writings so yep you want to jump in on the new testament because i kind of rambled for a while on that yeah new testament uh is is, completely different (laughs) yeah it's uh it's different because it was um there is less national and historical identity uh attached to it or was attached to it at the time of its writing compared to the jewish old testament so um the torah was largely viewed as a historical document it was a it was the history of the jewish people and their relationship to god um obviously you get into um the the new century you get into ad times and uh, the New Testament is composed by a bunch of different authors, a lot of which who are not Jewish, uh, and it's not. It is connected to Jewish history, obviously. Would we would say, but it's not really the same as being like a, a portrayal of. Uh, it's not. It's not portrayed as a historical document in the same way that the Old Testament is like a very important historical document for the Jewish people because Christianity is for everybody, right? It's a it's a turning, it's a new leaf. Um so you have New Testament canon which is composed uh the majority of it is composed of the gospels and mm-hmm. the gospels are just writings about Jesus, Jesus's life, what Jesus did, Jesus's work. Uh, and then you have what are called epistles, which are letters written by apostles to instruct the early church, yeah. essentially. There's other stuff, like you have Acts in there, which is uh, a, a historical account of the early church. And uh, you have Revelation in there, which Revelation is technically uh, an epistle. Uh, it's just like an apocryphal epistle. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so that's the that's the composition of the New Testament, essentially. So early Christians uh, had, I don't want to call it an issue, but they had uh, a problem where they existed and you had a bunch of writings floating around. So not everybody was 
immediately 100% sure on what should be trusted for Christian instruction and what shouldn't be trusted for Christian instruction. In fact, the idea of a Christian canon came because of um, one of the first early church heretics, Marcion, right, who comes up and says, Old Testament, good. Uh, These writings in the New Testament that are floating around, but because there's no New Testament yet, he's like, I don't like Paul. So you can't read Paul's writings. Yeah. Uh, and I think he got rid of almost everything except for like maybe Luke, Acts, and I want to say John. Parts of John. But so like the problem is, is like the church recognizes fairly early on that there's a lot of disagreement about which books belong where. Right. And you have this, you have this problem because uh, if you're a Christian, especially very early on, Right, uh, churches were founded by the apostles, by um, missionaries. So mm-hmm. you'd have a missionary or an apostle come into your city. They would preach the gospel. You'd get saved. They would probably hang out in the city for a couple months. You would get a church started and going. Uh, you would have a church of a couple people, and all of your instruction on Christianity was from this singular person, mm-hmm. essentially. They would tell you the gospel. They would tell you the works of Jesus. They would tell you what it means to be a Christian, how to act, and what you should do for church. Uh, and then eventually they would leave. And then, so you're a Christian, you're in church, you got this information from a person, you're just kind of like hanging out trying to follow what they're doing. If you're lucky, or uh, rather, if you're unlucky, you end up getting a letter from an <laughs> apostle. Well, there's a few that are encouraging. Yeah. If you're lucky, maybe you have... Like, because, you know, Jews get saved in these places, too. Maybe you have somebody who's Jewish, who's wealthy, or there's a synagogue where there's a Torah scroll or something like that, and you can read that. But if you don't, yeah, you just have to go off of what you've been taught. Yeah. So the very first Christians could not just, like, open up their Bible and read the Gospel of Luke if they had any questions. They couldn't just be like, oh, I wonder what Jesus says about this specific thing, or, like... You know, they were they they were going off memory for a little while there um, until we get the actual gospels written down, which happened. I would like we can uh, this doesn't really have to do with canonicity, more with dating. Uh, The gospels were written pretty early. It did not take super long (laughs) for them to get written down. Uh, But the point being, you had like you had a lot of Christians trying to figure out what proper teaching was and what to do and what should what is scripture, what isn't scripture. Um, so that's how we get on to the discussion of, of canonicity. Um, you have early church fathers who quote epistles and quote certain writings and explicitly call them scripture. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to make this point clear just because there was a, a confusion, a little bit of confusion in the early church does not mean that they did not have any notion of scripture or canon or God-breathed word, right? Like they they knew it existed. They knew it was out there. They used epistles for teaching and viewed them as scripture. The confusion was surrounding the very nitty-gritty, like which which specific books, which specific uh, letters should be considered scripture. And that's how we get to the four the four uh, tenets of, of canonicity. Mm-hmm. This is, we're, we're all talking about post apostles. So, you know, you thrive off of all these teachings for so long and then these, these letters start to circulate, right? And then all the apostles die and soon there's nobody that even remembers any of the apostles because all the apostles' disciples die out. Like, how do you maintain a standard of teaching into the future? Um, and I don't know, before we dive into like how that, I mean, we kind of have a little bit about how that came about, but do you want to talk about the, the manuscripting process? So the theory that I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, go for it. Uh, generally speaking, the idea was that when apostle Paul, for example, writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, for example, he writes down this letter and he sends it to Ephesus the elders read it to their church in Ephesus and they recognize, wow, this is really good. So they write that letter down because they want to have a copy of it, but they recognize that it's teaching and because they care about their other brothers and sisters in Christ, they send that letter to a different place. 
and then they write it down and then they send it and then they write it down and so this circulates throughout all the churches and generally speaking this is how like all of the epistles and all of that kind of stuff like circulates around um, the ancient world is everybody makes a copy of it when they get it and they write it down as quickly as they can and they send it on so that everybody can benefit from it. So around the time that um, all the apostles and their disciples die off, um, all of these letters have been circulating around the Mediterranean for like generations basically. And so you have all of these letters that are from, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> Jordan, cut that up. <clears throat> it's cut. It's cut. You have all these letters that are circulating around from Paul and Peter and John. And then you have other letters that are circulating around, maybe from other apostles or other people um, that sort of make the same claims where it's like, oh, this person was an apostle too. Do we trust this person? This person has written something down um, and it's really spiritually beneficial, uh, but they didn't claim to be an apostle. Should that be in the Bible? Uh, it's circulated around a lot. We have a lot of copies of this laying around in churches, but does this meet the same standard of teaching and can we recognize it? Or maybe this work isn't doesn't have a name on it or this work person claims to be an apostle, but that person was dead before this started showing up. And so that's sort of the conversation that we enter in is like, how do we decide which of these manuscripts that are all prevalent, which one of these are recognized as scripture? Because early on, some writings are claimed as scripture that don't meet that standard. Or there are writings that aren't claimed as scripture that actually do meet that standard. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the ancient world and where we find ourselves in, in this conversation. And, uh, if you will, I just want to add to that or point out something in that, if you'll allow me to get a little bit pastoral for a hot second. Here. Yeah, go for it. Uh, it. That is really amazing to me, considering that a lot of the epistles are not kind to the churches that they were written to. Like Paul especially has some pretty scalding rebuke at times. Mm -hmm. uh, so those churches, uh, you know, like Corinth, uh, the church of Corinth would have received those letters where Paul is essentially just like reaming into them for several chapters. Uh, and they had the humility to go, wow, this is really good teaching. We're going to spread this around. So our brothers and sisters in Christ don't, don't make the same mistakes that we did. Yeah. How often do you, dear listener or Jordan, since you're here with me, how often have you gotten a sternly worded reprimand from somebody in your life that you really, really cared about that spoke into you spiritually for a long time and is responsible for your spiritual growth for a huge portion of your infancy in Christianity. How often do you get reprimanded from that person and then immediately go tell everybody you know about it? Yeah. It's like that, that does not happen. Like you guys have to hear about this horribly stupid thing hey, I was doing. Do you want, do you want to know about all our dirty laundry and what, what the apostle Paul thinks of it? Yeah. <laughs> I sure didn't, but here you go. Now you know about all the crap that we have going on that we've failed to deal with for the, how, however long. And yeah, that's that takes an incredible amount of humility. And yeah. I want to say like... Really shows you the character of early Christians. Yeah. I think like, if anything, it also shows you the sovereign hand of God over this situation to equip his church regardless of its faults. Yeah. So. Yeah. Pretty cool. So canon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you have this debate. It's a very common claim. Uh, you hear this all the time. The most famous example I know of this. Uh, well, it tons of I've heard so many people say this, but the clip I see on TikTok all the time is of Joe Rogan talking about how, oh, well, canon was decided by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And before that, Christians didn't have canon, which is patently false uh <laughs> canon was not even discussed did you just at name Nicaea? drop a smaller podcast are you trying to boost his numbers is Do that you what you're joe doing rogan right? is, a, <laughs> is a smaller Dude, podcast you have to will this into existence <laughs> everybody <clears throat> don't go listen to that that small podcast listen to the sacred cow podcast instead yeah yeah one day we'll we're gonna be bigger than joe rogan mark my words <laughs> we're coming for you joe we're coming for you joe boy <laughs> The Roganer. Uh, <laughs> I have a question yeah. for you. Okay. 
you don't want me to finish my thought on <laughs> I'm Constantine. sorry, keep going. I was keep just going about say, Constantine. It's patently false. The Council of Nicaea did not even discuss canon at all. That's not what the Council of Nicaea was for. Uh, you say it with me. Arianism. Arianism. Uh, we'll talk about that someday. And Constantine absolutely did not come up with the canon uh, and like declare what should be canon or not canon. That is just a ridiculous claim with yeah. no historical evidence. Nobody, as we've discussed, declares what canon is canon. Right? right. God defines what his canon is. The church just recognizes which books are from God. So there isn't one single person coming in and saying, like, these are the books that belong to God. It's the church over a long historical period recognizing these are the books that stand out the most that we can trace back apostolically and recognize can change people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which brings me to my question. Are you ready for it now? I'm ready. I've always heard that you can recreate most of the New Testament based off of the writings of the church fathers alone. Like if you didn't have the New Testament and you just traced through all of the writings of the church fathers, like the direct quotes that they use, that you could recreate like 90% of the New Testament based off of quotations alone. Yeah. Have you ever heard that? I have. I have heard that. Um I, and I've heard that from, uh, I would, what People I would that consider you reliable sources. Yeah. yeah. I have not personally verified that claim <laughs> at all myself. We, so you, um, what you missed podcast was before this, we were like, oh, like I was like on Kindle. I was like, I, I have the works of the early church fathers. And then Jordan like one up to me and he's like pre or post Nicene church fathers. <laughs> and then he shows me this like list on his phone of church father writing. And he's like scrolling. He's like, this is over like 5,000 pages of church father writings. You just got me, excited. You tell me you don't read that much. I haven't read. I ha the collection I showed you is like over a thousand books. It was like a hundred eighty thousand pages <laughs> or whatever. I have not read all those. No, <laughs> I have not even read a fraction, a fraction of those. Uh, so no, I cannot personally verify that claim at all. But I have heard it a lot, and I'm sure the early church fathers quote scripture pretty constantly so yeah. it, it's not like an outrageous claim they're to appealing not to surprise a me. authority yeah yeah what church fathers have you read <laughs> what church fathers have i read yeah i'm um, just like out of curiosity I've i want to have a little bit of fun before we just keep going because uh i've read um polycarp Irenaeus. i've read a little bit of ignatius i've read uh some athanasius i've read a lot of augustine um I've read a lot of Origin. I'm trying to think. Some John Chrysostom. Ooh. And I feel like I can never say his name right. Nobody John, does. John Chrysostom. Duh. John Chrysostom. Honestly, you're going to learn in like 10 years that we've discovered a new Greek letter and we've honestly been mispronouncing. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. All the yeah, names. Yeah. So I've read, a, I haven't read like, uh, again, like i've read a tiny fraction in comparison to how much the church fathers have written uh but i've read a decent amount i would say compared to compared to the average person cool yeah i really liked uh justin Martyr's dialogue with trifo mm. i think that was probably my favorite one just because of how like honestly it opens with like his personal testimony mm -hmm. and that like that's such like a modern like I want to say evangelical thing to do. It's like he first and foremost thought that he wanted to explain why he believed this. And yeah. I just thought that was really beautiful. Yeah. It moved me. I was moved. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you should read church fathers. Absolutely. Um, speaking of church fathers, there were things that the church fathers wrote uh, that were considered for canon and were eventually rejected. The most prominent one I know of uh, is the, the martyrdom, martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp which is yeah. i have read yep. and is actually fantastic it's not a long read no not at all it's only like three chapters long four yeah. chapters long something like that but like um, it, it you, you read it and you can tell why people thought that maybe it needed yeah you to go get it into, it yeah. it ministers to you like i teared yeah. up reading it it's really good. i don't know i actually legitimately i was having a conversation earlier today with uh one of our kids who's more like theologically biblically scripturally minded spiritually minded 
and he was talking about Polycarp. And it's like, I don't know a single person that hasn't like read Polycarp, the martyrdom of Polycarp, and been like, oh, I had a moment while I was reading that where I was like really feeling it or thinking that he's like the coolest dude ever. Like, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Polycarp was a direct, what we would was call one of the disciples of John the Beloved. Yeah. What we would call an apostolic father. Mm-hmm. So he's a first generation church father. So it goes Jesus, disciples, apostolic fathers, church fathers in like generation wise. So mm-hmm. uh, an apostolic father is just generally a church father that learned from an apostle. Right. Yeah. Directly. Directly yeah. from an apostle. At the um, feet of John, I think he says in one of his writings. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool, dude. Really cool. Uh, I don't know. Off the top of my head, I don't know why uh, it ended up being rejected. Um, well, because I don't canon. think its authorship is clear. Yeah. And I think that yeah. it it it's sort of not in the same time period because obviously it would have been the only one written by the only piece of scripture written about somebody who wasn't an apostle. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's just kind of like too late. Yeah. Because when are we talking about like the martyrdom of Polycarp is like 170? I actually Fact check don't me. Know. Well, I'm cheating because I have the dates of the church fathers in front of me. Uh, you have it pulled up, huh? Dude, I have my old, my church history <clears throat> quiz sheet of all of the church fathers' uh, dates. Um, all I can see is second century AD. Cool. So, pretty late for Ken. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's really good. You should read it. There's another book, um, that was very, very heavily considered for canon and was almost canonized. And then I don't want to say like last minute because it wasn't like a decision that they made, but it was like it could never overcome this final hurdle to be considered canon, and so it was ultimately removed, uh, and that's the Shepherd of Hermes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it couldn't overcome the hurdle of not it's not connected to an apostle right. in any way. Which we should talk about, <clears throat> because there is a book in the New Testament that isn't connected to an apostle, like mm-hmm. in it, like Hebrews does not claim authorship from anybody. Correct. Um, so exceptions can be made. So why don't you think an exception was made for the Shepherd of Hermes? Because there are church fathers that talk about it as though it was scripture. Yeah. Um, the difference there being the, so the Shepherd of Hermes was used for teaching in the early church quite heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quoted a lot by the church fathers and it was generally, it was generally seen as like, if you are a Christian, you should read this book. Kind of like a mere Christianity. Yeah, very, very similar. Um, it was ultimately rejected because it could not, no clear line was ever established for an apostle and nobody, the The difference being between the Shepherd of Hermes and Hebrews was, and we can we can talk about at some point what we think of this and whether or not this is actually true, but the church fathers in the early church commonly attributed hebrews to paul right to pauline authorship yeah that was a common sentiment yeah and they the talk time. about it like when they give their lists of books of paul hebrews is often in there more right. so than it isn't it's sort of i don't want to say it's a modern idea because it's not super modern but um it's more modern that hebrews isn't attributed to paul than it is correct um yeah and the shepherd of hermes does not have that benefit Mm -hmm. nobody really nobody is like oh this was clearly written by an apostle or somebody who is close to an apostle so it just doesn't it doesn't have that so it was never made canon but it got close yeah have you ever read it um i've read bits of it i've never sat down and read it like cover to cover all the way through it's like apocalyptic right it's about visions i believe so yeah 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 any other books? Wasn't the the Didache or Didache? Yeah, that the um that was also kind of similar to Shepherd of Hermes, used a lot for Christian teaching, heavily encouraged to be read. Um, 
And I'm going to say this and I cannot immediately back it up with a direct <laughs> quote. Can we get like a red flashing X on this <laughs> on this screen? Um, I have read excerpts from the Didache uh, and some of them looked, some of them were very weird to me and like very strange. Okay. And I have like, I can't remember off the top of my head, like what was strange about it, but mm. it, it's just like biblical teachings. I think they have a lot of stuff about like proper worship in there and like how Christians should act in worship and how like Christian women should act in worship and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, just some of it seemed weird to me. And, uh, but again, I have not read it. The Didache is another one that I've not read through cover to cover. I probably should. I should I probably do that. I think but. if I remember correctly, the theory was that it was a manual for Christian worship Mm-hmm. that got passed around a little bit of just like because the church didn't have like a, a a written liturgy in the beginning um that was sort of like an early attempt to unify across churches that's what i've heard i don't know how accurate that is um yeah so you can fact check me internet if yeah. you want um you also have do you want to talk about so do you want to go to Gnostic writings or the Apocrypha first? Because we should talk about both those things. Oh, goodness things. gracious. Well, we can hit the Apocrypha really quick, I feel like. The can Gnos- we? <laughs> can we? Can we do anything quick? So the the um, the books we've been talking about, the the Shepherd of Hermes, uh, is the Didache in part of the Apocrypha? I know no. Shepherd is. Shepherd is um, part of a collection of books that we refer to as the Apocrypha or Apocryphal writings. Really? The Shepherd of Hermes is in the Apocrypha? I believe so, unless I'm wildly off mark here. I don't think that's correct. I don't mean to like out you like that. No, I appreciate you uh, calling me out if I say something incorrect. I might just be completely uh, misremembering. I don't think it is, man. I think so. I think the Apocrypha are Second Temple jewish literature books so books that were almost exclusively with a few exceptions written in um the intertestamental period so the time mm-hmm. period historical time period between the old testament and the new testament so i don't think the yeah Shepherd i might be it gets added in there but apparently there's more than one apocrypha throughout history there's just one common one that makes its way into the modern world yeah so you have the, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So you have the apocrypha. Uh, you also have like deuteral canonical books, pseudepigraphal, pseudepigraphal books. Um, so there are like different d- different levels and different degrees of like how how uh, useful books are and like how close okay. they should be. Break this down real quick. Yeah. So a pseudepigraphal work is a work that uh, is floating around. Anytime a, a Bible, a book of the Bible was written. So a pseudepigraphal is just an adjacent work that might also have been considered for um, canon, but it didn't make it in, or it's written about scripture, or it's just another work that was floating around that time period that m- could or could not have been put in. Um, when we talk about the Apocrypha or the second canon, the Deuterocanonical books, we're talking about the specific set of books that are in what we would call, I'm going to put this in wacky air quotes, the Catholic scriptures. Um, there are books that were chosen by the Catholic church and may or may not have been recognized by Protestants as well um, throughout history, but there are a specific set of pseudepigraphal works that are comprised and are currently in uh, versions of scripture that are more Catholic leaning, like uh, the King James Bible or the Geneva Bible or whatever. Um, so pseudepigraphal is like sort of like a blanket big picture term applying to both Old and New Testaments. Um, apocryphal is like a specific set of books, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. Hopefully that made sense to you, if exalted listener. Yeah, that was a good explanation. I can't believe I was wildly off the mark there. I don't know why I thought... What do you mean wildly Shepherd off the mark? ...was part of the Apocrypha for some reason. Because uh, um, it sounds like it. Dude, some of these books in the <laughs> Apocrypha, the idol bell and the dragon, you just yeah. slide... Or like the, the, the prayer of Manasseh or Tobit, you can just slide... Yeah. Shepherd of Hermes in there, and it seems like it makes sense. You can tell uh, that biblical scholarship is not my uh, not my specialty, not my academic focus. Um, you just like Old Testament 
tends to be where I get thrown a lot. Um, it's where I did most of my study. Yeah. So that just, it's par for the course for me, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, but um, when we talk about things like animal souls, I'm like, uh, it's not in Bible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the Apocrypha are these extra books. They are used um, by Catholics and uh, Eastern Orthodox. We It really kind of, we can talk about that a little bit when we, if we ever talk about Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, which I would love to at some point. Sure. Um, the point being that uh, some Christian denominations consider the Apocrypha to be part of biblical canon in a lesser sense, which mm-hmm. you kind of get into like canon and second canon. And then you have uh, Protestantism, which rejects the Apocrypha as like, we're like, you know, second canon sounds right. kind of ridiculous. This is not. So when we say, when the Catholics are saying, when the Catholics are saying, oh when the Catholics gosh, are saying, Catholics, uh, generally speaking, the idea of a second canon is that they're not on par, okay, with the first canon. Right. Which means that they don't meet, nobody's saying that these books meet the standard of teaching of the first canon. The suggestion is that maybe there should be a second canon of teaching. Maybe these these books were helpful and ought to be recognized as a sort of less to a lesser degree. Um, you get into the weeds with between some Catholics because yeah, it's it's a big discussion. Some people are like, well, they're inspired. They're just like inspired in a different way than yeah. And what, so you get into degrees like, of inspiration and what does inspiration mean and what yeah. do we mean? And, I would like to uh, also state emphatically while we're talking about this, we we brought this up before. I want to extend it now to Catholicisms. If you're a Catholic, uh, hello, and, and you are watching this, thank you. We're glad we're, you're here. We are not ripping on or attacking you personally, and I hope we don't come off that way. Uh, we're just talking about different denominational beliefs, and right. this is a huge difference between Protestants and Catholics and, and Orthodoxy. I will just say that universally, Protestants tend to sort of condemn the second canon as useless um and i don't necessarily think that that's fair i think that you can gain wisdom from understanding the context of some of these writings in their proper place just like you can read like i don't know name your favorite christian author that isn't like god (laughs) right (laughs) who writes a book that you like like c.s lewis like writes so prolifically about the christian life and, and and his experiences with that and so many people have found that helpful and meaningful both of us included right mm-hmm. and we all have books by our favorite authors who just explain scripture or a theological idea so well like you shouldn't just come to a book and it's like oh it's not scripture and get rid of it right the the issue with most protestants have is they don't like the fact that the second canon is placed right alongside of scripture um and i think that that's valid but I don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that all of these books are completely useless yeah. and don't have a place. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about this in our very first uh, episode. Christians should read <laughs> and Christians should read a lot. Yeah. And you should read scripture. You should also read things that aren't scripture. And both of those are good for you. Yeah. Scripture might be more good for you. More good. But it doesn't mean you should only ever read scripture and never read anything else in your entire life. So I think the Apocrypha fits into that. I I think Christians should probably, it would be a good idea to read the Apocrypha at some point. Uh, If not to be familiar with what's in it. Yeah. To know what you believe about it. Um, And I think that very clearly God can use anything in your life, you know, that isn't directly sinful to minister to you. Um, Mm -hmm. So you should... You ought to do it. It's a good idea for you to do it. Yeah. That's just our plug. But do yeah. what you will with that. We're plug not your in mom. the Apocrypha. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a listen. You thought we were going to slam Catholics, but no, now we're Catholic lovers. I love Catholics. Yeah. I really do. We'll talk about that at some point. I love Catholics and Catholicism. Most of them. Most of it. In as much as I also love most Protestants. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, not speak in generalizations. <laughs> All uh, right. Gnostic writings, Gnostic teachings. You want to talk about that, Joe? About Gnostic gospels? I can go for it. You should you go want. for it because I hit the apocrypha. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, um, 
there were there were there was a, a collection of books that was discovered um and they had some writing so a lot of people were freaking out about it and we commonly refer to a lot of these writings as gnostic writings mm-hmm. and the gnostic gospels not all of them are te- are um trying to consider themselves gospels but just like gnostic writings um these writings these types of writings are not new they uh are very old uh we have uh it was Irenaeus who wrote against heresies right yeah yeah Irenaeus writes against heresies that's like his seminal work that's like 240 80 or something like that Irenaeus is 130 to 220 or 202 okay so even even earlier yeah um uh, and so the church father Irenaeus writes this book called Against Heresies, um, and his entire problem is he is dealing with the Gnostics and Gnostic writings and Gnostic teachings, uh, and that's his entire beef with these people. So these Gnostic texts are not new in any way. Um, they We've had some of them that have been rediscovered, but we have known about them and their kind for a long, 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 long time. Mm-hmm. I want to make that emphatically clear. The church was not covering them up or hiding them. They've they've been here. They've been around a long time. Uh, and Gnosticism is, uh, I guess, I oh can talk gosh. a long time about what Gnosticism is. Do we? Uh, I can. So, Essentially, oh I'm gosh. not going to go into it. <laughs> Essentially, go, Gnosticism, Gnosticism has, their, has their own pantheon. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> refers to a wide range of beliefs. Um, so it's uh, essentially Gnosticism is the belief that there is like secret knowledge right. in the universe and that by learning the secret knowledge, you can usually like become better than other people or learn cool things or it's all about finding enlightenment yeah yeah yeah. um and only certain people have access to this hidden knowledge that's gnosticism there are a lot of gnostic beliefs uh irenaeus fights against gnosticism because people are spreading these writings around where they're like oh jesus told these secrets to the apostles specifically and the apostles told these secrets to me so if you follow me i'll tell you these secrets that nobody else in the church knows Mm -hmm. and that is not christianity at all christianity all the knowledge of christianity is freely given and freely received nobody's hiding anything the Apostles gave all the knowledge that they were given from Christ to the church. There is no hidden knowledge. People don't know magical things more than... Nothing is hidden because of Christ's work. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Paul talks about it in Ephesians, right? He talks about the mystery, right? The mystery that's now revealed is that Christ is for everyone, right? Salvation is for everyone. And so the idea, even of the Gospels is to argue from a certain perspective that Christ is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he's come to save the sinner and to the lost. Like there's nothing about that, that the apostles wanted to be kept secret. And that's pretty obvious. If you've read anything from the new Testament, anything from the Canon where you see Paul or Peter or anybody saying, Hey, listen, like we got this from Christ. This is what he told us to say. And here it is. Like, there's yeah. no secret. There's like, an open secret, according to Paul. Right. But it's something that was hidden but isn't hidden anymore because of Christ. Paul says, I give you what I was given. Right. Right. Um, so you have these Gnostic writings. There's a couple of them. The most popular one that I know of is called the Gospel of Thomas. It purports to be um, sayings from Jesus. I think there are like a hundred and something, some odd, like, sayings from jesus in this gospel of thomas uh they're really weird and not good (laughs) uh can you read some of them i'm sorry wow yeah absolutely i want to hear let's because i've never actually uh, read it let's find one uh saying 29 jesus said if the flesh came into existence because of spirit that's amazing. If spirit came into existence because of the body, that's really amazing. But I'm amazed at how such great wealth has been placed in this poverty. Which that <laughs> is that is a classic 
Gnostic belief. An- another uh, belief right. in Gnosticism is that the flesh and the f- the physical world is bad and evil and sinful, and right. the spirit in the higher plane is like good. So, and that's um, a lot about like what the whole secret knowledge thing is. Is like you're trying to ascend to the point where you don't need your physical body anymore, where correct. you can commune wholly with like your spiritual or your spirit. Um, yeah. So, so you have the saying attributed to Jesus, where Jesus is essentially being like. Oh, I'm amazed at how something so amazing, the spirit, can be placed in something so this poverty, which is the flesh. Right. Uh, which is just like <laughs> nicely slipping in some Gnosticism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, and there's a lot more. Like, some of it is not that offensive, and you could almost see Jesus saying something like along those lines. Um, some of it is kind of weird, like uh, saying 36 is Jesus said, don't be anxious from morning to evening or from evening to morning about what you'll wear. And that's that's just it. I mean, but that, that said, is in scripture. <laughs> but it's like Jesus said, uh, don't worry about your outfits. Don't worry about what clothes you'll wear. It's almost no, like they were reading through yourself. like an actual epistle or something. Yeah, like, oh, like, that's oh, pretty I can, good. I can change this. Yeah, why not? Yeah. So it, it's kind of weird. Um, and we, the, again, the church fathers knew very early on that this, uh, the gospel of Thomas is, uh, a Gnostic teaching. I'm not certain this is, uh, an unfounded statement. I think it's mentioned in against heresies, but I'm not a hundred percent. Really? The gospel of Thomas? Uh, I think I remember least, hearing like, slightly something about referenced. that. We should fact check that or you should, should fact, fact check, check that. that. Somebody should fact check that. Please fact check everything that we're saying. I think it's like, or it might be something like he quotes the Gnostics at one point and it's like almost a direct quotation like from the Gospel of Thomas, something along those lines. Yeah, that's the cool part about the Church Fathers is they're not scared at all to quote from the texts that they're arguing against. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very thorough. Um, We like to think that we're the smartest people who've ever existed and that everybody who came before us was an idiot. But that's really not true. The church fathers were super educated people that God gave the ability to be able to argue well um, and be able to be thorough and faithful. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have uh, the other popular Gnostic gospel I know of is the Gospel of Mary. I've Um, never heard of the Gospel of Mary. Really? Uh, Written from the perspective of mary magdalene oh maybe i have yeah Um, i remember something in the back of my head i've never read it i've also heard uh secondhand that there's a lot of weird crazy stuff in it um i do know that it was it's dated to i think it's like 480 or something it's like pretty late um pretty old or uh pretty uh uh what's late. what am i trying right? to say yeah pretty late pretty after the gospels that's the point i'm trying to get at pretty mm-hmm. like 300 years after our latest dating for the gospels essentially so um definitely not an accurate or trustworthy gospel you should not listen to it it's a gnostic writing so none of these writings like pass the test right because purely like supposing like they meet every requirement like they can be life-changing like they're attributed to an apostle none of these books passed the widespread use in the early church test like if the church wasn't recycling them over and over and over and we found them randomly like laying around somewhere like that does not meet the requirements for widespread use in the early church for canonicity like regardless of the content or how good we think it is or how well they're preserved like it just doesn't meet the standard it doesn't meet the canon. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just wanted to say that because it's like the question is going to land on. It's like, okay, well, why were these books never placed in the canon? It's like, well, because they don't pass the test. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you have all these books. The I think the moral of uh, this episode is that people say a lot of crazy things and people really look for any way they can to disprove or discredit Christianity. And the thing about Christianity is that it's an open book. So these Gnostic writings are not new. We're not making like these grand discoveries of these huge conspiracies. The church fathers fight against Gnostics in 
200 AD. Uh, so it's yeah, it's it's not a new thing, but people treat it like it is. Okay. Uh, hopefully, you've learned something about canonicity. I know in my teaching life at our our church, I talk a lot about with people who are really confused at how we got the Bible or maybe not didn't ever actually think about how we got the Bible. Um, so it's a huge topic. We covered a very Spark Notes version of it today. Um, so if you have questions, please comment or ask. Or um, And then as always, fact check everything that we say. Um, don't automatically assume that just because there's two people talking on a podcast, we're correct about what we're saying. Um, yeah, because I know for a fact, <laughs> I say something in this episode that is blatantly untrue. <laughs> so. uh, but please also have an open mind and be patient with us because like, uh, we're also coming to our own conclusions on things um, as everybody does. Um, and we're doing the best we can with that. So, um, but please study, you know, yeah. canonicity for yourself, please. Um, we really don't have any reason to be embarrassed about scripture or the books that are or in, aren't in it. We have an embarrassment of riches. Like there's truly no other book that's been documented as well and as historically as the Bible has. Um, and there's really no other book that we have manuscripts that are as old <laughs> or fragments of manuscripts that are old as the Bible. So um, please continue to study that um, or comment below if you want more information on it and we can find some stuff for you. So I yeah. hope this was informative. Absolutely. Thank you guys uh, Thank you. so much for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate it if uh, you do continue to listen. I know that might be difficult because we're probably awful uh, <laughs> podcasters, but we appreciate you being here. And yeah. uh, we will catch you all Thanks next Thanks to time. all five of you. We'll yeah. see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>